Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It's hard to believe we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. You're telling me, producing this show week after week is so much fun, but it does require a lot of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your purchase is made through our links. Give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. We covered a lot of great movies that were adapted from other material in season 10. Our originals page at thenextreel.com slash originals is where listeners can purchase the source material behind all our adapted film discussions. It helps support the show at no extra cost when you buy through our links. In our foreign language Best Picture nominees series, we looked at several adaptations, including Z, The Postman Il Postino, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, and Letters from Iwo Jima. We hit the high seas with In the Heart of the Sea from Nathaniel Philbrick's nonfiction book for our Aquatic Killers series. Eh, definitely a weaker entry in that series. I bet the book is better. Oh, me too. Member bonus episodes featured adaptations like Gone Girl, The Russia House, Ivanhoe, The Hot Rock, The Big Heat, and Naked Lunch. Oliver Stone brought not just original stories, but also adaptations like Conan the Barbarian, Scarface, Year of the Dragon, Eight Million Ways to Die, Talk Radio, and Born on the Fourth of July. Mary Heron's disturbingly insightful American Psycho was adapted from the Brett Easton Ellis book. You like Huey Lewis in the news? Oh my God, it even has a watermark. And of course, more Stephen King with The Mist, The Green Mile, and The Shawshank Redemption for our King a la Darabont series. Find links to all of these books and more adapted films on our Originals page. That's thenextreel.com slash originals. Every purchase supports our show. Get the full list of books that we've talked about and start your next read today at thenextreel.com slash originals. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to The Next Reel. When the movie ends... Our conversation begins. Dead Mountaineer's Hotel is over. It's time for a rousing game of peekaboo.
I know there's a lot going on in this movie, but the only thing I think about when I think of Dead Mountaineer's Hotel is the guy hiding behind the sheet in the corner. (laughs) (laughs) You won't see me. I'm not here. Object permanence does not exist. (laughs) La-da-da. You put the sheet down, you idiot. So funny. Pretty much. You sound just like the detective. (laughs) Yeah. Andy, uh, we have a longtime partner in the folks over at Letterboxd, but they didn't know it until very recently. How's that? (laughs) It's it's like the silent partner. It is the silent partner. Does that make us Elliot Gould or are they (laughs) Elliot Gould? (laughs) Elliot Gould was hot in the 70s. Don't forget. When wasn't he hot, Pete? When That's what I'm hot? saying. He was amazing. But what do we have now? We actually, we've, we've consummated our relationship with Letterboxd, and it's really great. And you want to talk about it? Our friends over at Letterboxd, yeah, we're uh, partnering with them. And, and we have a deal for anyone who is interested in in upgrading their membership over at Letterboxd. Because, you know, like a lot of great services, uh, especially ones for movie lovers like Letterboxd, it's free. You can use it. You can track your movies. You can do all the stuff you want to do, read reviews, write reviews. But they do have a few uh, paid options. They have a pro and patron upgrades that give you even more awesome features. Like one of the ones they just added was that when you have your watch list, you'll get notifications when movies on your watch list are added to the streaming services that you have marked down as uh, the ones that are your preference. Fantastic new tool that they've added for paying members. Well, now you can get a 20% discount if you are um, using the the code NEXTREAL when you purchase your pro or patron upgrade over at letterboxd.com. You can also go to the nextreel.com slash letterboxd, which will take you right there. And you, you know, in your show notes, you can just you can just click on it. I believe, right, Pete? And it'll take you right. Yeah, there. we'll we'll put the link in the show notes. Uh, it's super easy. It redirects from uh, our link over at um, uh, thenextreel.com/letterboxd, and there's no e at the end. L e t t e r b o x d. Correct. Although you know, now that I say that, I'm going to go ahead and put the put another redirect with the e in it. I screw that up all the time. <laughs> You know, it, it could be like Van, Vampire Hunter D. Maybe it's Letterbox D, and we've just been you know, saying it D. wrong all these uh, years. All the whole time I've been yeah. saying it wrong. Anyway, we're huge fans of the folks over at Letterboxd, the work they are doing, and uh, we just love the, the service. Uh, frankly, I, I do it. I do it just for the look of the thing. You get a, a better-looking profile. You get your top uh, film header image up there. It's worth the price of admission <laughs> uh, for me, just, just for aesthetics alone. All the uh, and stats you, can bet. you get, I love all the stats. Oh, you know me so, and stats, yeah. Pete. I know you're a real nerd for it. Um, <laughs> I I think that uh, you can expect we're going to be doing even more with Letterboxd uh, now that we're officially in 2021. Holy and, cow! Uh, so we're yeah we're excited about that. Nextreel.com/slash Letterboxd. All right, Andy, it's time to talk about Russian movies in Estonian. Oh, wow. Is that, you know, I I watched this and and at first I was like, I know there are a few versions of this on YouTube. Did I pick one that was translated into a different non-Russian language? Because like everything was written with like English letters, even when it wasn't like 
you know, spoken in English, right. but I'm like, I'm pretty sure that they're not speaking Russian. I wonder what they are speaking. It turns out it is Estonian. It is Estonian. So the thing with Estonian, do you know much about Estonian, the language? I don't know anything about Estonian, the language. Okay, this is fascinating. First of all, in the language family tree, right? You have your Romance languages, you have your uh, Slavic languages. Estonian hangs off the tree like an appendix. It is a language family unto itself, right? And in terms of grammatical cases, uh, you know, Russian apparently has six. Uh, the United States has their, have, we have our, or English, <laughs> United States, English has their, has our cases. Uh, English, we have our cases. I can't speak it uh, because I'm thinking a lot about Estonian and my native tongue, you know. Anyhow, um, and Estonian has many more. It is grammatically the most complex language uh, that that we have in in terms of uh, modern languages still spoken actively by a large percentage of a population, Estonian is incredibly difficult to to speak. It it sounded to me a lot like the the like Swedish or yeah. Do you know what I mean? Well, I suppose it makes sense, right? Because it's it's yeah. definitely closer, like to those Nordic countries. Um, yeah, as right. far as the countries that you know the USSR was made up of. Yeah. Well, it turns out that the Estonian people apparently have very strong feelings about the Russians that lived there, and because their language is not related to Russian in and of itself, they actually have a rigorous. Uh, language examination that you have to pass to become a citizen. So people don't immigrate to, <laughs> to wow. Estonia. Uh, and so I think that's fascinating. That's really, really interesting. And this movie is, I think, also fascinating. We're talking about Dead Mountaineers Hotel, 1979. What'd you think of it? Crazy little movie. I kind of really enjoyed it. I had a great time watching it the the concept of it was great the location everything about it was set up i thought incredibly effectively the filmmaking was uh, it was definitely kind of 70s uh, you know the some of the technical side of things were a little uh, rougher around the edges but it was pretty clear to me that uh, that our director grigory kromanov had a solid handle on just kind of how to tell this story and and the way to create cuts and edits and how to capture mood and and just made a very evocative surreal uh, film that I really enjoyed watching. I had a great time with this one. This is part of uh, Pete's series of Russian science fiction films. Can we call it Russian science fiction? I feel like it's Soviet. I feel science like now, fiction. yeah, Soviet science fiction films. That's what yeah. we should definitely call it. That and and the Soviet Soviet era uh, science fiction films. It is. Uh, it, we're just just teasing the series. I think there are a lot of bananas films out there, and I'm really glad we started with this one. Um, and, and I should say a special thanks to uh, community member uh, Nick Langdon, who is a student of these films and of uh in particular uh quite a student of of soviet era pop culture and uh, he was incredibly helpful in help in providing a great list for us to choose from uh, of these movies and this was the first one also lucky for us uh writes 
are difficult to uh, <laughs> <laughs> to manage in terms of copyright for a lot of the films. And so this one and the rest you can find on YouTube. You'll find them in the show links. Uh, if you, you, you won't find it anywhere else. Uh, but jump on that YouTube link if you want to watch along and, uh, and, and check out Dead Mountaineers Hotel. It's in the show notes. Uh, or a friendly search on uh, the YouTube uh, service in your local jurisdiction. It looked like it had been based on the credits, and I, I couldn't read what it was saying, but it looked like they had done an actual restoration of this around, like, 2009. Um, the, I mean, yeah. it looked really clean. Like, the copy that I watched on YouTube was, it felt it felt like a restored great. version. It was very crisp, and uh, it was great to look at, yeah. I I marvel, and we'll, I, I guess we'll talk about this later, too, but I marveled at the the um the dynamic range of the film right that they were able to capture such striking contrasts in highs and lows the darks in this thing are black yeah. uh and the highlights are still so much detail for a film of this era the restoration was impeccable whatever they did was masterful i mean it just looked great and really added to that tone even though the the movies in color often you feel like it wasn't it felt like it was of a different era um one might say uh alien so to speak yeah you might say some or, might you might say something some like might. that all right uh, i'm i'm with you i really liked it one of the things i was most curious about in terms of this this series is that um i my sense memory is that soviet filmmakers uh war and slash uh, wore their sort of cultural sensitivities on their sleeves heavily, especially when viewed from the outside. Uh, so there was a lot of uh, of just more overt criticism of the state as of, uh, in in and delivered by the arts. Uh, and I think that that makes for interesting pictures. This movie subverts a lot of its own sort of internal um, tropes, the the tropes you expect from the movie, right? It's a it's a detective film. It's kind of, it's noir. It's science fiction. All of those things, and it in its own way, it sort of breaks uh, all of the expectations in favor of uh, that criticism which I think is really interesting. I actually think the movie is, I, I think it may, I, my hunch is it would surprise you that I really liked this movie. I don't think it surprises me. Really? Yeah, maybe oh. it's just the fact that you picked the series. <laughs> I just kind of <laughs> assumed that you would really enjoy these, but... It's, yeah. it's one of those movies that I felt like I normally would, I, I picked the series, but I, I was ready to hate all of the movies and love watching them. <laughs> I was ready for that. Like I just was had had girded my loins for that emotional experience, and I have to say, I was I was very surprised by how much I like this movie. Um, is it is it perfect? Is it you know is it's its imperfection lies largely in the fact that it's now a bit dated, but I think it says a lot, and it was a lot of fun to watch. So, uh, all right, where would you like to start? First off, I would just like to start with um, just the the setting and the tone and what you get. Even just when the film kicks off, you get very just cold shots of big like mountains, like steep, cliffy, you know, snow covered mountains that are still and you have this really fantastic kind of it. I don't know if it is Moog, but it definitely is kind of synthesizer music that feels it almost feels like if there were um 
you know, it, it, it feels like it could be alien instruments. Like it actually feels yeah. like it works really well in context of it. Uh, Sven Grunberg, Grunberg wrote the, the music and it has this really creepy haunting feel. And I wouldn't be surprised watching this film if Stanley Kubrick had seen it and said, I want the start of The Shining to feel just like that film does, because it, it feels yeah. very, very similar. And I think that it creates this location that I think sets up a place for the story that is isolated, that feels haunted in a way, because, it, I mean, even just the the namesake of the hotel, this, this mountaineer who had been climbing and had uh, been killed by an avalanche. And that's what they named the hotel by. And and his dog is still there. And it just, it was, Uh. it made for this really creepy, isolated, trapped setting that I found to be unsettling and perfect, like the entire time. Despite the fact that it's not, there is plenty of moments throughout the film that's not of that tone. Yeah, I think so. The the movie does jump around with tones a lot. and, And, you know, that's... Uh, I, I guess that's that is one possible critique I might levy against the film, but I, I do think the the setting in particular and the combination of sound it sets you up for a paranormal experience, right? It sets you up that this is going to be the the Dead Mountaineer Hotel is is a place where we're going to have some sort of haunting. The film looks like it's going to be some sort of a haunting thing. I was fully expecting a ghost story, and I did not get a ghost story. <laughs> I did not get a ghost story at all, um, uh, which, which I, I guess I think was fascinating. The setting, in particular, of the hotel itself, is it me or is it the worst place you would ever put a mountain hotel? Like, they do these wide shots, and you can see two plum-perfect avalanche channels that should, in all rights, have swept the building down the mountain long ago. Why would they put a hotel there? You know, in the, in the spirit of the movie, it works great. In the spirit of, you know, smarts and architecture, it does not. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it depends. I mean, there certainly is this sense that it's going to be um, buried in an avalanche at some point. I suppose, I mean, having grown up in a mountain town, I suppose it's it's how well they take care of that. And I know uh, they don't seem to be. I guess that's the answer is, yeah. you know, I, I know that at ski mountains and stuff like that, I mean, they can, they can you know, use uh, dynamite and other things to just kind of prevent the snow from building too much so that you don't get those big avalanches. And I mean, my sense from this place, especially based on the, like, as soon as our detective arrives, he sees a couple people hang gliding there. Yeah, which never we never come back to that. But I'm assuming people go there and hang glide. And one of the hang gliders is wearing skis. So I'm assuming that, you know, I'm not sure if that's some sort of thing where you 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 ski Ski and then you take off. Yeah, yeah, it's it's like, you know, when you've got the parachute and you run down the hill and you kind of float up and then you land and you run. And I can't remember what that's called, but it's like that same sort of thing. You're describing it perfectly. I'm sure all those who do it are saying, man, Andy knows his stuff. I'm sure they are. Right now. I'm sure they are. (laughs) Just like Pete and his ski gliding. (laughs) (laughs) But so, I mean, it's it's it does feel very much like a destination hotel resort that you go to to go skiing. Right. I mean, it, it has that feel like I wouldn't be surprised to see a hotel destination resort like this in like when we talked about force majeure. It has that same sort of 
feel, right? It well, it does, but it's much smaller. I smaller mean, I think and by, by a our experience, more precarious. Like, <laughs> yeah, precarious. There are seven, like seven rooms in the whole place. It's very small, um, and and so it really. I mean, I I just think that makes the entire experience of the movie. It works to its credit because everything feels fragile in this movie. Everything feels like it's just about to break, and we need that, right? We need that experience because as soon as we introduce our detective in here, um, we need to to put him at odds. Very quickly, because the movie's short. It's 80 minutes runtime, and we, we so we, we got to get to it. Uh, I love that our first experience of weirdness, well, beyond the fact that the lights are all off, like it's just very, it, it's very stark from the moment we we walk inside. But as he goes up to his room, he changes clothes, he comes down, he's walking up the stairs, and there's, uh, what's his name, is has climbed the walls and is above him in the stairwell it's that's uh simon simonette yes right uh, which is great what a fantastic introduction to the character and and it's that little twist uh for you know for our detective our hero to to start experiencing oh the people here aren't they aren't <laughs> what i would normally work with and what i would expect they're gonna keep being a little peculiar yeah yeah yeah. Um, it, so just, I, I love the location. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great location. I was I was poking yeah. around trying to figure out where was this because it seemed like such a specifically built location like in the in the kind of this nestled in this little kind of valley of the mountain here that I'm like it has to be a real hotel. It seems like a really difficult location to build just for the film. But I didn't mm-hmm. have any luck. Uh, finding where this hotel was. I, I will keep poking around and see if I can track it down, but I'd love to know because it just seems like one of those places that you want to tag on your like uh, Google Earth to go, you know, one of these days, I, I wouldn't mind going to check this place out because it's just crazy. Right, right. Where in particular, like even which country Right. Well, I read that they filmed it in Kazakhstan. I did. I did. See they that did much. film it in Kazakhstan. Yeah. Oh, that's right. That's yeah. right. They did film it in Kazakhstan. I wrote that. I, I uh, noted that too. Um, so they filmed it in Kazakhstan. I. I, I mean, it, it feels about as isolated as I would expect from a mountain town. All right. Um, the, I mentioned the pacing uh, earlier. I think the pace is really great. There's another reason that makes it one of uh, a, a film that Pete really likes because the pacing is. Um, I uh, one critic described it as glacial, but the runtime's only eighty minutes, which feels just about right to old Pete. That feels great. If you're gonna, if you're gonna move, <laughs> if you're gonna give us a lot of those sort of introspective close-up shots, uh, let's not stretch it out over two hours. Let's just get, let's just do it. Let's just do the whole thing. Get it in there. Move it. Move us through it. Give Pete the story. It was one of those, though, I honestly felt like, you know, if they took a little more time with it, I would have been okay. I mean, part of me is glad it wasn't like a three plus hour, um, you know, kind of Tarkovsky type of film. Like, I, I, I didn't need that much kind of long staring at things. But I... Some of it was like I, I did start feeling like some of the actual story was getting a little rushed by. Like I got a little confused about we, you know, our detective is called up here by an anonymous call to come investigate this. Um, you know, the the I don't know. I, I guess somebody reported that there might be somebody here who is involved in some bank robbery. Is kind of my sense of it, right? 
Mm-hmm. And then yeah, I, right, but it was an anonymous call. It was an anonymous call. Plus, yeah. he gets this anonymous letter at some point, also while he's up there, and everything is basically pointing to to this one particular character that happens to be um, here, uh, Hinkus, and so he's suspicious of him. And then, but then a dead body appears, and so I. But I started losing track, and I, I feel like this never really fully settled for me as to. What was the point of these aliens, as we later learn, of trying to get him to come up here to help them by getting rid of Hinkus? Like, I started losing track of, like, okay, well, what was the—why did he come up here? Because I know they were having their own issues, but I guess I, I started losing track of other elements of the story that I feel like could have been— cleaner if there was even just a little more time like 10 20 minutes i'm not saying it has to be yeah. some hugely long film but um i don't know did you have any issues with those points i i do i i think that's a great point i don't think in the grand unveiling and this is one of the things where i where i said you know it feels like you know the the film is subverting some of the expected tropes of a detective noir uh thriller of uh you know a science fiction whodunit uh, this is one of the the areas that i think the film really suffers and that is that you can't rebuild back to that point it, it's it, once they introduce the fact that at the end it's aliens, you can't unravel the whole thing and feel like it makes any sense to the very beginning of the story to to my eye. It's really challenging to go back and think about why were they initially called uh, who was who was running from whom uh, who really are the you know who are the gangsters who are the government like what are their their uh, intentions i think are muddy uh, and it all starts with why did he why was he called up there in the first place yeah and i don't i i think it's just it's just muddy that's and that's the trick that's the real trouble with all of this because i know it it, it cuz hinkis does come out and say that he is in fact a gangster he's like of the hit squad or something that he says yes and he was which, sent- which i imagine is a soviet uh, illusion right i mean the hit squad of the of the like yeah. of the the government right 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 and then uh and he had been sent there to track down somebody right or is that what it mm-hmm. was I can't remember now why he was sent there, but uh, I've, uh, he was there to to track down. It was like the master or something. Or yeah, he was the sent master, by the master. Right. He was sent by the master to 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 find the. I thought it was the name that started with an A. Afandalverbar. Olaf's last name is something like that. Yeah, yeah. I thought it was something like that. But see, that's case in point. It's confusing. Yeah. Plus, then there was Owl, and I was confused. I got yeah. confused as to who's Owl again. Like Owl was Mister Moses. Yeah. So right. Yeah. I don't know. See, and that's why it gets confusing because, and then Mister Moses, who is the alien, says, you know, he came down here, and his mistake was that he was drawn by the humans and mm-hmm. wanted to explore them, but then he found that they were way too complex for him to deal with, and had to get back to his planet and all that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. So that's, I guess. Like, talking through it, I'm like, okay, so then maybe he called the cop to come up here so that they could try getting rid of this gangster so that he and his alien compatriot and their androids could get out of here. Um, and, but then when they reveal all this to Glebsky, the the detective, you know, he is too law-abiding, which, again, is another uh, pointed remark, I think, of the Soviet uh, mm-hmm. rule. 
and uh, doesn't care to learn anything about them or learn anything from them, but wants to only follow what the law tells him to, and basically has them killed so that that um, and and then he takes Hinkus, and that's kind of the the end of the story. Which is, I mean, it's it was dark. It was uh, really kind of an interesting and uh, shocking ending. But yeah, I just I I could have used a little more time just yeah. to kind of make sure that I really understood all of the stuff that was happening here. Well, and I just back to that early, to my earlier point about about pace. We go into some some sort of surreal. Uh, filmmaking in the middle of the film. We've got the dance sequence. We've got a lot of explorations of close-ups of body parts. It's, uh, you know, it's it, it's that, that sort of non-narrative exploration of image and sound. And that's the stuff that, for me, can really bog a movie down. Right. If it yeah. is if it, if they spend too much time in it. and this movie does not. And I think that's what I celebrated this movie is that it's uh, it, it's a film that 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 dives into these things for texture, even at the cost of some narrative exploration, which I think you've described perfectly. Um, and, and I too could have used a little bit more of a concrete setup, but some of it's forgiven because they completely break the, that detective trope, which is that you can rebuild a story. If it's going to be an alien story, then it, we sort of have to change gears in that, that third act, which I can see being a, a, a source of contention for some viewers. I mean, it can be, it's, <laughs> the 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 way that the story is constructed the surreal nature of a lot of that stuff because it also just feels like when the music is playing and they're dancing and everything it has i mean it's just it's like early 70s like yeah funk rock it was like this really crazy music that they're they're jamming out to and let's just say everybody around the world listened to some selections of terrible music from the 70s that's this right movie, that's a, case in point very much so but yeah then you have like the strange eye the the image of mrs moses's eye as mm-hmm. she's looking at at uh, glebski which is just a very disarming shot and it's just all filmed like in this hallucinatory way and yeah, so it's 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 a disarming film because it keeps you guessing. Just everything is so odd. These the the people here. There's just such a peculiar mix of people. Some of whom we meet, some of whom we don't. I know there was at least one woman that we see at the meals, that and that's the only time we ever see her. Um, but largely, it's just I, I don't know. I think it's a disarming film, and but i think it's effective and i think that's what makes it end up working so well mm-hmm. is you know we're following glebski and it's his story and at the end you get this uh, interesting kind of black and white cut to where he's been narrating to us from and just basically defending his position and i was like okay that was a really powerful way to kind of wrap all of this up you know even if the story you know, fluctuates in in how well it's told at some points. Mm-hmm. When that ending hit, I'm like, "Wow, okay, that was that was kind of a an interesting brazen way to kind of uh, just you know hold his head up and say, "Yeah, I did it. What are you gonna do about it?" Sort of thing. Well, yeah, I did it. What are you gonna do about it? But I I also had the sense that there was a curious bit of regret in his delivery there. Like, like there's just there's a sense of uncertainty, which. I, I feel like goes to like he's a good communist, right? He's he's doing his thing. But part of the 
part of the exploration of the film is to challenge is to challenge that right is to challenge the soviet fear of other right it's to challenge the the exposure to strange new worlds and in this case strange new worlds is you know gender fluidity it's uh you know in the film it's literally aliens but in you know in the the story it could we're talking about just sort of the the fear of invasion the fear of cultural test the fear of nonconformity right i mean that is that's that's so much of what the what the film is poking at and we kind of need our good communist investigator to go through the whole thing and watch the destruction of these people at the hands of his military and 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 you know he stands for what he believes but i i walked away feeling like there was there was more of a sense of huh did i do the right thing am i saying that i did the right thing because that's what i've been brought up and trained to believe and that sort of confrontation against cultural fear internally and externally is one of the things that works for me about the film hmm. i it, sort i sort of need that well I, I think that's actually an interesting uh, way to read that. And I find it, everything at the end, um, I, I think there is a way to read into that, like like that. You know, I think that it's mm-hmm. there. Because, I mean, he's just staring right at the camera, basically kind of telling us all of this. But it's a pretty interesting way to kind of interpret that, that, you know, there's a hint of regret, but he can't voice that at all, Right. It's yeah. the, it's the yeah. Russian way to not voice any of this sort of stuff, you know, to he's a police officer. He has to do his job and that's all. And he's going to kind of close himself off. But I think that it's interesting to kind of see that. And yeah. that also ties in with kind of the noirish feel. You know, it does have kind mm-hmm. of this film noir, this voiceover. And here he is at the end kind of looking at everything that's happened and he's made these bad choices. And you know, maybe there's a hint of regret, but he's kind of burying it under his uh, subtext. It's interesting. Yeah, wh- yeah. Which, which is what, like, that is the definition of the Soviet state. I, I just, I, I remember, you know, we were in China for a while, uh, several years ago, you remember, and, and that experience of standing in Tiananmen Square and asking our tour guide to show us, to, like, walk us through, like, where did it happen, Tiananmen Square, right? Like, where did were the events, and to have him look at us and say, I, <clears throat> I can't, I can't show you, I can't point, but it's going to be right over my shoulder. Mm. because he's being watched all the time that's the authoritarian state right that's what these things are so i'm sure i am watching this movie with my notoriously you know western eye and i am reading a lot into that subtext but Mm. i also know that you don't make a movie like this you don't make a movie that pushes the bounds of gender nonconformity fear of of the external you don't leverage the sort of estonian folklore cultural fear of body snatching and the homunculus just sort of creature under control of the other like those are things that are rooted in testing and and pushing against uh, those that are that are in positions of power and and I think this movie like th- this movie executes that this isn't a this isn't a state propaganda film by any stretch no and you know we we need that character to go through this and in many ways to sh- to to you know as the the please let my life serve as a warning to others right I'm I'm a member of the state look at what destruction I hath wrought yeah. I 
I had destroyed mankind's, potentially mankind's greatest discovery because of fear. That is the lesson of this movie. We learned there are aliens and robots, and I had them destroyed (laughs) because I'm terrified, and I represent the Soviet state. That's what this movie is about. Yeah. Or, yeah, yeah. Or more sadly, you know, I wasn't terrified. I was just doing what I was told. And, you know, I, I chose to not think about... You know, whether I was, uh, you know, what Maybe what destruction worse. I have wrought, yeah. I am a mindless automaton. I yeah. do at the will of the state. Yeah. Ugh, it's it's disgusting. Like, that's so, so I, for me, that's more uh, illuminating and, and more compelling to think about. And it allows me to forgive some of the narrative stuff that you bring up, which I think is equally important. I mean, to a certain extent, that the lack of some of the narrative stuff does lend itself to a little bit of kind of the uh, obfuscation that you sometimes find in some noir films where you're mm-hmm. you know things aren't always that clear anyway likewise it it helps with kind of this surreal tone that the film has so so to a certain extent i mean the film might work better because it's not being as as overt yeah right leaving the door open to some of that yeah. oblique interpretation is makes it interesting yeah and it's based on it's based on the material by the um the strugatsky brothers boris and arkady and Mm -hmm. they also wrote stuff like hard to be a god which i you know the film version of that i found just just like a dense wall of mud that i just didn't want to wallow through it was very it was difficult it was a difficult one but they also wrote the material that's uh, that uh, Tarkovsky's Stalker was based on. So they definitely mm-hmm. have this sense of tone. And I think they're uh, enjoying what they can do in this science fiction realm to kind of explore these messages. It's pretty interesting. Well, I think so, too. And, and uh, well, you know, one of the uh, academic resources I was looking at, this quote that, that you know, this is uh, the that their original book, which it was interesting. I think it was called, uh, one of the adaptations was more directly called uh, Inspector Glebsky's Puzzle, not Dead Mountaineer's Hotel, uh, which I, I think is a, I, I don't know if that changes the view of what, you know, the movie is about. It sounds more innocent, right? M- maybe more approachable. And that the brothers Strugatsky, uh, that their uh, mature prose is a response to Brezhnev-era intellectual malaise and their prologue to their later critiques of Soviet society, right? Like, this this is a critique to the state and uh, not a love letter by any measure. Yeah, really fascinating. I, I found it to be an incredibly fascinating story. And I love, like, just, I love these sorts of stories, right? I love that during the period in our country, we were getting stories like The Crucible that was talking mm-hmm. about kind of uh, what, you know, kind of the witch hunt that was going on within um, within our country, but told yeah. through a story of kind of a historical fiction looking back at the Salem witch trials. Same thing here, the way they're using science fiction, which is such a great tool anyway to do these sorts yeah. of things, to, to look at what was going on in uh, in kind of the soviet controlled parts of the of the world at the time i just find it really fascinating where do you stand on zombies 
Because we've got well, we've got the noir and we've got the aliens, and then there's a bit of a digression where we talk, uh, uh, speak a little bit, uh, at a, uh, I'd say academically about zombies in the movie. Yeah, it was a strange moment. He's talking to the hotel manager at that particular uh, moment, Alex, about uh, about things, and Alex brings up the fact this whole idea of zombies and how some countries in Africa have uh, found ways to bring people back from the dead, and it's called their zombies. And he mentions that it's this uh, possibly a third state of living organisms. And I was like, okay, well, is this an alien movie? Are we in zombie territory Mm -hmm. now? Like, where are we going with all of this? The fact that he brought it up, though, in context of everything else that's happening, I found it to be very interesting because I started, I kept thinking about it. Like, why did the zombies come into play here? And I was like, especially when you look at the way the ending plays out with with our detective making the decisions he makes and the way he speaks to, to the camera are we implying that some of these people might actually be the zombies and they're just, you know, they, they are unable to think for themselves anymore. And they just, they have a dictate that they have set before them and they just follow that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I actually, I I think that's a really good way to approach it. Um, there is a critique of those who are mindless in the movie and those who are, um, those who are active participants and the, the aliens and their robots are very much, uh, you know, doing their best to be active participants in the narrative. And I think that's part of the the critique is what are you what are you going to be? Right. What are you going to be in this whole thing? Are you just going to be controlled? And it goes back to I do want to read the this bit about the crat. Can I read to you about the crat? The crat. I yeah. haven't heard of the crat, so I'm curious what this is. Estonian folklore leans a lot into the idea of host-taking and shape-shifting. The Krat, for instance, is a creature born of hay and tools brought to life by blood to work for its master. A sentient used to dig, run chores, exist as a slave imitating human life, but being only a homunculus to the will of whoever would deal with the devil to will it into existence. So we we have a couple of of ways to approach this, right? This this sort of dive into Estonian folklore as root for some of the character decisions, and one of them is that it, you know we're we're facing the question of zombies, which I think you can make the same sort of um, allusion to the Krat as this sort of historical zombie, not reanimated dead, but you know animated objects as a creature of evil. But we also have this as an allusion to the detective, right? Are you just working at the at, at service of uh, of some other party without the ability to make your own conscious decisions? And I think that's a um, a really interesting thing to force him to look at to to address. And you know, the extent to which he does or or does not over the course of the movie, I think is you know to to your eye but uh i think it's uh, i think it's really fascinating this comes from matchbox cine uh, a fantastic uh, uh piece on this film from match from the folks over at matchbox cine i don't know what do you think i i love that idea uh, i mean it's it's an estonian film it feels very much you know kind of of that world and and just uh i don't i i find that to be a really interesting idea that they may have pulled from some of their own mythology to kind of lend to the story a bit. I find that to be, I don't know. I, 
I feel like there's a lot of interesting things going on in this film. And I it, it's short enough where I feel like, you know, this is one that would be a fun and easy one to revisit and just kind of see yeah. w- more of what's going on with all of this. Well, also one that you don't, I, I don't feel you have to fear too much introducing to other movie lovers, right? No, because yeah. it's not, it's not like hard to be a god, right? I mean, it's, it's one that actually gives <laughs> right. you a lot of really interesting things to think about. Um, what do we know of our fair uh, director, Grigory Kromanov? Kromanov is, uh, he is Estonian. He was largely a theater and film director. He's, you know, I, I don't know Estonian film like the world of film in Estonia that much. But apparently he has directed some of Estonia Estonia's best-known films, including this film and another film called The Last Relic. And he also did another um, film called Diamonds for the Dictatorship of the Proletariat, which is a detective story. So he seems to be kind of in that realm. And I, I'm not sure about The Last Relic, if it is also uh, kind of of the same kind of detective sort of thing. I don't know. I, I, I think that he, honestly, I was really impressed with a lot of the direction throughout the film, even though it didn't seem like they had a ton of money and if they are filming at the ends of the earth, I know it can be a little difficult trying to do the things that you want to do when you really are like stuck in this hotel filming with the crew that's there and you have the gear that you have and that's it. But I felt like the shots were really creative. The lighting worked incredibly effectively. The just the setups, everything was was clean and it worked in context of the story. I was just constantly impressed with what Kromanoff was doing here. Just a few examples, there was a shot when, or a sequence when the detective comes in and is talking to uh, Brune about the disappearance and the actual death of Olaf, and she had been uh, Olaf's uh, girlfriend slash lover, and she totally falls into despair, and it's just like she the way that she's shocked and everything, and then she has this recollection for him about the last time that she saw him and they were together in the room and then the avalanche came and he like shoves her out of the room and the way that the shot of her getting shoved out of the room and it cuts to her reaction shot which happens to be back in the room with the detective as she's telling it it's just like it was incredibly effective cinematic storytelling the way that that whole scene was constructed so i was just i really was impressed with everything that he was doing here Died young, died at 58 uh, in 1984, but I do want to put a movie on our watch list because this sounds like something we would be interested. Diamonds for the Dictatorship of the Proletariat, you mentioned. The year is 1921. Lenin and the Bolsheviks have just defeated the White Army and ended the Russian Civil War. However, valuable diamonds that belong to the ousted royal family are beginning to disappear. It's Mm. a spy thriller, detective mystery heist film, Andy. It's all of the films. (laughs) <laughs> that we that we want out of the movie and i think we should i think we need to get this on a watch list it's a 6.8 on the imdb six star scale of goodness so we can't lose i'm can't i'm lose. certainly more curious about it now having watched yeah. this film which is his last film i know yeah. fascinating it, it is it does feel like a last film to me doesn't it hmm i mean it, it doesn't feel know, like is there a way to gauge that i don't I, think I it feel, feels it feels like a last film to me. I feel like it feels like a film later in someone's career, 
I wouldn't necessarily yeah. say it feels like a last film, but it feels like somebody who had a handle on the cinematic tools that were available to him. Well, and using those tools to speak truth to power. I think that's one of the things that's most interesting about the film is that it, it feels at once sort of unafraid. Yeah. Um, and there were a lot of reasons to be afraid. Yeah, right. Uh, at the right. time. So, uh, okay. Uh, Arkady Strugatsky and bro- uh, brother Boris Strugatsky yes. uh, wrote the original material and wrote the screenplay. The book came out in 1970 and uh you know it, it's it sounds fairly similar like you read the plot synopsis of the book and it sounds like they didn't change it too much mm-hmm. but i i just think that the sort of stuff they they would write it it feels very um much of this looking at the soviet structure through their mm-hmm. science fiction stories yeah, yeah, I think so. It's interesting that this this thing is so. Uh, this was this is early in their in their career together. This was very very early, and uh, you know before Stalker, and um, so it's in so far as it feels like a later in the career film for our fair director uh, Kromanov, it does feel it perhaps a little bit early for the in in their writing career. I, it makes me interested to go back and look at some of these other translations. Yeah, and it found it sounds like you know, they had actually wanted to actually write the adaptations of some of their work for some of the earlier films that had been adapted, but uh, the directors had turned them down. So it sounds like this might be, you know, earlier in their uh, adaptation career. So that's yeah, kind of exciting. Certainly, very early uh, in their adaptation career compared to. I mean, this is thirty years before How to Be a God. Yeah, and I mean, they're, uh, I think that they're, uh, are they both still around? I, I, no, I think that, no, they both did die. Yeah, they both have died. Yeah. Um, so, 91 and 2012, uh, Boris died. died Boris, in right before, yeah. a year before How to Be a God was released. Fascinating. Um, anybody in the cast you want to call out? I, I don't know anybody in terms of actors. None of them were familiar to me. No, nor I. But I, I did like the look of all of them. I thought Uldis Puchitis. I don't know. Puchitis. 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 Looks like it sounds like a disease. Uldis Puchitis. Yeah. yeah. Uh, played our inspector, Inspector Glebski. I loved his face. I thought he was really fantastic as the detective. I thought he worked really well, and when he had that uh, little talk to the camera the monologue there at the end it just in the black and white i was like ah he's got a great face for black and white filmmaking it just it was really nice the Mm -hmm. way that he fit in there i think the same thing can be said of of jury jarvet and lembit peterson as alex uh schnuvar and uh simon simonet um both of them fantastic and uh, and even Hinkus, when we first meet Hinkus on the rooftop he's wrapped in uh, furs because he says he has uh tuberculosis and right. it needs a lot of outdoor uh, air, fresh air. Um, I, what what a great look for a uh, a frail gangster, right? Yeah. As uh, you know, as the guy that we're that as we have to meet him uh, to kind of set the stage for who he is. I thought he was great. Really interesting face makeup too. Yeah. Like it was designed in a way that was a little. Uh, I don't know. It it's slightly theatrical, but also made them look. 
a little closer to death in some strange way. Right, right. And that uh, Mrs. Moses, when she loses her hair. Oh, <laughs> right? boy, yes. I mean, what a fascinating choice when she, of course, is a, is a robot. And so, robots got no hair, Andy. <laughs> but we just don't know that. At the time, it was a lovely surprise. Uh, so, I think the character design was, was just really great uh, across the board. And we didn't really talk about Lel. Uh, I didn't find the name of the dog, but uh, the St. Bernard was wonderful. And it fetches guns. It fetches guns and takes you to your room. Very yeah. handy. I just love the fact that here we are filming at this mountain hotel and growing up with stories about St. Bernard's being the dog that had the little barrel of of whiskey around their neck to help stranded skiers and, and people in the mountains. And here we yeah. have a St. Bernard. I just was like, oh, how yeah. perfect. Of course, he did no good for his his owner. But yeah, you know what you want to you want to do good for your owner. You jump down to the bottom of the cliff, dog, and you catch him like a horseback. Yeah, catch right. him when he falls off a cliff. That's what you do. I, I, that was a, that speaks to a really interesting dream sequence that we have where Gretzky is apparently he's dreaming of skiing. I assume that he's almost like he's in the dead mountaineers like mind at that point like he's he's reliving the moment of him falling off the cliff or something because we see him skiing and then he falls off the cliff and he's at the bottom and he looks up and he sees somebody at the top laughing i thought that was alex snowbar was it alex or hink was it hinkus i don't know but that's part of the mystery that was like they why did they make a deal about that the dream sequence why is that even in the movie if it's not important to know why the guy was dead to the overall or so that's what i wonder yeah and we have that moment where where gretzky is watching the news and it's like a burning building and you just keep seeing body after body and it looked like real news footage i don't know if it was or not but it, it looked like mm-hmm. real news footage of a of the firefighters trying to put a burning building like a high rise out and people are are you know making that awful decision from up high of you know avoid getting burned by jumping out and you just keep seeing body after body falling to their deaths and it's like is this real news footage and if so why are we watching this and how does it fit into the story other than making it even more unsettling yeah i i guess and and that right there i mean it goes back to that point of of incomplete narrative elements that makes this not a five-star movie for me right that it is there's enough that just doesn't quite work that that I feel like it it's not it's not a perfect film, uh, but it is it's a, a great exploration. Jury Sillart is is behind the camera, and I we've talked about the the camera work uh, already. Uh, it's I think it's really great, given as you say what they were working with. It's just a lot of of great and inventive visuals. For me, the most uh, the things that stood out most regarding the cinematography were that when it's dark and night, it is like pitch black. But what was even more interesting is that when it's daytime and they're in a dark room in the hotel, like the window is not letting any light in. Like you can see that it's daytime outside, but it is still pitch black in the room. And I found that to be a really, really interesting lighting choice. I don't know if they just put a bunch of uh, neutral density filters across the windows to keep the light from coming in, but you could still see outside and you could tell it was day. But it made it feel so cold that I was so impressed with all of that because for a hotel that's way up in the mountains in the middle of winter, it felt cold. Like when you're looking at the sun, 
it just it felt like a cold, cold sun. Like nothing yeah. felt warm in this film. And I was really impressed that the cinematography really emphasized that so incredibly well. Nailed it. Anybody else you want to talk about, or shall we just talk about Sven Grunberg? You know, I, before we talk about Sven, I do also just want to talk about the the fact that we have the secret robot suitcase. Like, it's right. like, <laughs> right. how funny is that? It seems like, it's I wonder. batteries, man. <laughs> right, it's just robot batteries. I, I was like, that's brilliant. That it, But it's another one of these examples that, you know, you have of these filmmakers. And I know Tarantino has used it before, but I mean, he's pulled it from films long before this one back in the, in the noir days of kind of you're opening up that thing and it's just that light inside. And I, I love mm-hmm. that idea. And here we have this strange robot suitcase. You don't get that same sense where they open it and the light beams out. But when you're looking inside of it, it's just like, I, you can't even tell. It's just some strange mm-hmm. light things, and it just feels very, very science fiction-y. I just, I loved the idea that they were playing around with that. It was really cool. I do, too. Uh, okay, Sven Grunberg, you, we've already talked about the Moog stuff at the beginning. Uh, what do oh, you think of the yeah. music? I loved it. I thought the music for this was so fitting to the just the feel and the vibe of the film from start to finish. It just lent this air of otherworldliness and uh, kind of this tension that it created. I just was incredibly impressed with the music. Yeah, me too. I think it was it was just really um, there was just a sense of cleverness to it, you know, beyond their choices for soundtrack material. Um, it it was I, I think it was just really great at setting the setting the tone and the feel of the film. Very textural, great stuff. Fantastic. Yeah. Do we do we have facts and or tidbits, Andrew? Um, I did have one. One little note. Uh, apparently, you know, you have this big mural inside the lobby of the hotel. I just, I loved the look of this hotel. It was so 70s, but it was so hip. Like everything about it was just really cool. There's this huge mural inside that, that when we're talking to Alex, the innkeeper, he's talking about how it's a portrait of like the dead mountaineer, this person who had actually died. And it's a picture of him and his dog sleeps on the kind of the dais underneath it and everything. But it actually is of... um it's Chuck Close's mezzotint of the artist Keith Hollington. There's apparently, a, uh, it's designed to match the version in the Pace Gallery um, in New York City. So I thought that was kind of an interesting little uh, bit of uh, information. I think it is interesting. Just as interesting, Andy, as the other adaptation we haven't mentioned yet. Yeah, right? Did you ever play the video game of this? <laughs> I did not but the reviews are amazing right yeah it uh, apparently is terrible what's funny is i feel like i actually had heard of this game before like i i started watching it on youtube like watching it play out and i'm like i totally feel like i've seen like the trailer or something for this game it was not made available here in the states until 2015 I think before, or I should say in English, before that, I think it was done in German or and or Russian. 
but they say it's notoriously awful. Basically, you spend five hours, as this person says, quote, doing chores in a hotel before having the entire plot narrated during the last 20 minutes, apparently due to funding being abruptly cut. Yeah, it just turns <laughs> off. And uh, people who don't recommend it on Steam are legion. Uh, apparently, it's not just at the end where the thing falls apart. It's it, There are some just very strange choices in and around, um, you know, display. You can only run it at one resolution, 1024 by 768. Can't change it. But that doesn't matter because the game breaks in the first five minutes and you likely won't be able to finish. So... <laughs> <laughs> uh there are some some pretty serious bugs in it but there are there are some successful walkthroughs on YouTube that you can watch and it's it is it is fun and uh familiar for about 3 minutes and that's all you need you'll yeah. get it you'll yep. get the point so i i'm one of those people i really love gameplay like run throughs like straight like speed run videos and things like that i just really get a lot of satisfaction out of them so for me this is this is enticing stuff your management. <laughs> I can't wait to watch someone do chores yeah. for five yeah, hours. Right. For That's five hilarious. straight hours. Uh, <laughs> all right. How to do an award season. This is one of those ones where it did get some nominations and awards, but it's the sort of place where you're getting them all. It's not the Oscars. Uh, it, it won Best Cinematography at the USSR Film Competition, uh, Shostka, in 1979. Won Best Cinematography also at the Estonian SSR Film Festival in 1980. And that was uh, Yuri Sillart for the, both of those. And Best Art Design for Tonu Virve at the Estonian SSR Film Festival. And a, spe a jury special prize for novel expression in film music, uh, for Sven Grundberg at the Estonian SSR Film Festival. That's fantastic. All uh, outstanding. I'm glad to see that there is some award recognition. All I'm awards curious. that make sense. They yeah, make all sense, awards yeah. that absolutely make sense. I am curious how you're going to handle the numbers. Oof. I tell you, this is going to be a series where we're not going to get much. There's just, I, I can't find specific release dates other than the fact that it was 1979. You know, I'm just not finding anything. I don't find anything about the budget, anything about, uh, you know, how much did it make at the box office? I just can't find anything. So I have a feeling this is going to be a series with a lot of that. Yeah. Uh, well... I'm glad we started this series. I'm certainly glad we started with this movie. Yeah. Um, it was it was worth watching. Uh, so thanks, everybody, for catching up and watching along with us. And now, let's take it to the mat. I think we should. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel. You'll see all the movies we've talked about in this fair show. If you swipe over in your show notes, tap the word flickchart, it'll take you straight to this movie where you can uh, add it to your list over on flickchart and see how it stacks up against ours. First up, we have the Dead Mountaineers Hotel, or La Cage au Fall. Uh, Dead Mountaineers Hotel. I will say Dead Mountaineers Hotel. Dead Mountaineers Hotel or Seventh Samurai. Oof. Unfortunately, uh, I'm going to have to say Seven Samurai. Yeah, Seven Samurai here. Dead Mountaineers Hotel or Targets. I'm also going to say Targets. I will say Targets as well. Dead Mountaineers Hotel or The Killing. The Killing. I'll say The Killing. This is just about exactly how it played out on my own ranking. <laughs> yeah, it's a tough one. The Dead Mountaineers Hotel or Gone Girl? Gone Girl. I'm going to say the Dead Mountaineers Hotel here. Really? I am. 
oh, all right. Well, I'll take it to the mat with you, but I just want to uh I just want to say I'm I'm thrilled. <laughs> okay. That's your exuberance of this film. All right, here yeah, we go. Here we go. One, One two, two, three, three scissors. Rock. I crush you. Oh. I crush Gun you. Girl with takes my it. mighty rock. You, you sure did. The Dead Mountaineers Hotel or goodbye, Mr. Chips. Um I probably goodbye, Mr. Chips. Hmm. Dead Mountaineers maybe, Hotel for maybe me. Maybe Dead Mountaineers Hotel. All right. I'm gonna go with that. I'm not even gonna fight it. Okay. Yeah. Dead Mountaineers Hotel or The Departed. The Departed. I'll say the Departed. The Dead Mountaineers Hotel or the Thomas Crown Affair, 1968. Thomas Crown Affair. I'll say Thomas Crown Affair. Dead Mountaineers Hotel or Letters from Iwo Jima. Dead Mountaineers Hotel. I'll say Dead Mountaineers Hotel. Well, that puts Dead Mountaineers Hotel in spot 234 on our chart. 234 out of 486. That is about a 52%. So it's a little over halfway mark. Little over half. Okay, so mine did better than that. How did it do for you? I mine did better as well. Landed by fifteen seventy two out of four thousand five hundred thirty eight, which is a sixty five percent. That's uh, I'm even a little higher than that, and that's pretty much how it happened for me. It was a um, it won and it won, and then it lost everything else. But it did land at three seventy one out of fourteen eighty one, which is a seventy five percent. Wow, seventy five percent. If I am to go by the algorithm at letterbox.com, our friends and now family, letterbox.com slash the next reel, this should be a three and a half star film over there. And I'm going to give it to it. I'm going to say three and a half stars with a heart. That's where I landed. And I wouldn't be surprised if it uh, goes up on later viewings, but I just really thought it worked well. Three and a half with a heart for me. Yeah, delightful. Uh, just great. Now, it gets. Uh, I, I think it may get even a little rockier as we talk about uh, subsequent films. Where do we go from here? Next up, I'm curious if you can tell me the the Latin name for this one, because the English doesn't sound that exciting, or it sounds odd. It's called To the Stars by Hard Ways, 1990, directed, 1980, excuse me, directed by Richard Viktorov. But I know when you told me the Latin title or the Russian title, it just sounded so much better. What was that? <laughs> per Aspera Ad Astra. Yeah. Per Aspera Ad Astra. Yeah, it sounds great. That sounds like a movie you'd want to watch. To the Stars by the Hard Ways. No, that's a that's like a Hollywood tour of the, the celebrities' homes, is what that is. There's somebody on Letterboxd who actually gave, they listed every title that they could find for this movie. This is Beryl Parkey. Uh, the titles include Humanoid Woman, To the Stars by Hard Ways, Through the Thorns to the Stars, Through Hardship to the Stars, Through the Brambles to the Stars, Thorns in the Stars, through the thorns to the stars, through the thorn in the starlight, through starvation to the stars, through the difficulty of the star, girl robot, and starry princess Naya. <laughs> starry princess Naya. I, I can't remember exactly why I picked this movie. It comes. It's just a couple of years later, 1981, uh, directed by uh, Richard Viktorov, uh, based on the novel by Kyr Mbulyachov. And uh, I just, I found it, fascinating it's another science fiction it's another alien thing it gives us a chance to just to talk a little bit more about the uh you know the fear of the external and uh, that's something that I, I feel like we're going to be trucking with for a while here i can't wait when the movie ends our conversation begins 
Letterboxd giveth, Andy. As Letterboxd always doeth, Pete. Letterboxd certainly is going to doeth today. Uh, This is how much we love Letterboxd. We're going to read Letterboxd reviews instead of Amazon reviews. And let's see what some actual doggone film fans have to say about these movies. Because we're not going to be talking about the DVD delivery. (laughs) No, we won't be. For sure. Uh, Let's see. You went high? I did go high. Why don't you go first? I have a five star by uh, Mazin Kaiser from just earlier uh, in 2020 who had this to say. Yeah, but who says it wasn't gangster aliens, huh? (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Mazin Kaiser. (laughs) That's amazing. Uh, I went low. I've got a one star. From Rafael Lopez from April 2018. And uh, Rafael uh, writes in Portuguese. So this has been translated uh, thanks to Google Translate. Rafael says, Until a certain plot twist, this film turned out to be just a boring, badly acted, badly staged murder thriller. Harmless suspense had potential, and it's impossible to watch the first few minutes and not feel the echoes of The Shining released the following year. But I think the potential was all driven by the avalanche of the film. But now the soundtrack and cinematography are cool. This must be my first film from Estonia. And look, we didn't start very well. Oh. Oh, I know. Oh. It, it, it does say it is terrible. There's an asterisk at the end. It says, pessimo, terrible. Oh, jeez. I'm, I'm sorry that, that we, we part ways, but I did throw a like on that review nice nice i I will do the same on mine that is a good thing for us to do here thank you for delicious delicious reviews thanks letterbox i've been podcasting since 2006 in that time i've tried countless hosting platforms but in august 2022 we switched to transistor to power all of our shows here at true story fm And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today. <laughs>